1: We can look back at the 19th century up to the 21st century and see how white manhood was being constructed through meat eating. Even at the end of the 19th century, there was this belief that Western cultures like uh, Great Britain conquered and was successful uh, as a colonial venture because they ate beef and the countries they conquered ate rice. So there was both a Reconstruction or a a, a mythologizing of their meat eating, plus a feminizing and demasculinizing of the colonial places that they were crowing about that they had had defeated.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books and Animal Studies channel on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the Reviews Editor at Make a Literary Magazine. The focus of my contribution to this Animal Studies channel will be animal rights. I'm talking today with Carol J. Adams. Carol J. Adams is a feminist vegan advocate, activist, and independent scholar, and the author of numerous books. She's the co-editor of several path-breaking anthologies, including, most recently, Ecofeminism, Feminist Intersections with Other Animals and the Earth, co-written with Laurie Gruen. Her work is the subject of two recent anthologies, Defiant Daughters, 21 Women of Art, Activism, Animals, and the Sexual Politics of Meat, and The Art of the Animal, 14 Women Artists Explore the Sexual Politics of Meat, in which a new generation of feminists, artists, and activists respond to Adam's groundbreaking work. She has a Master's of Divinity from Yale University. In the 1970s, she and her spouse, the Reverend Bruce Buchanan, started a hotline for battered women in upstate New York. She wrote one of the earliest articles theorizing why batterers harm animals, titled Women Battering and Harm to Animals. Today we will be discussing two of Adam's classic works, both recently republished. The first book we discuss, first published in 1990, is the sexual politics of meat, a landmark text in the animal rights and feminist literatures. The sexual politics of meat argues that what, or more precisely, who we eat, is determined by the patriarchal politics of our culture, and that the meanings attached to meat eating are often clustered around virility. We live in a world in which men still have considerable power over women, both in public and in private. Carol Adams argues that gender politics is inextricably related to how we view animals, especially animals who are consumed. Further, she argues that vegetarianism and fighting for animal rights fit perfectly alongside working to improve the lives of disenfranchised and suffering people under the wide umbrella of compassionate activism. The second book we discuss, first published in 2004, is The Pornography of Meat. For 30 years, since the publication of her landmark book, The Sexual Politics of Meat. Carol J. Adams and her readers have continued to document and hold to account the degrading interplay of language about women, domesticated animals, and meat in advertising, politics, and media. Serving as sequel and visual companion, the pornography of meat charts the continued influence of this language and the fight against it. This new edition includes more than 300 images, most of them new, and brings the book up to date to include expressions of misogyny in online media and advertising, the Me Too movement, and the impact of Donald Trump and white supremacy on our political language. Never has this book or Adam's analysis been more relevant. Welcome, Carol, and thank you for joining us today.
1: It is great to be here, Mark, and thanks for all your work on uh, in preparation for this conversation.
0: So let me begin by saying that it's it's really an honor to be able to speak to you about these two classics of feminism and animal rights. Both books are overflowing with ideas and it it really has been a genuine challenge trying to make to condense all of these ideas into a handful of questions for us to discuss that still get at some sense of of what your books about but We've given it a shot and we'll see how it goes, but it, it hasn't been easy condensing everything you've written into into an ideally one hour conversation.
1: Thank you for trying. I know when the sexual politics of meat first came out, I had no soundbite, uh, <clears throat> no elevator speech. I was stumped how to describe the book in, in a short way. Of course, 30 years later, I, I think I've, I've learned or finessed some of that.
0: And I actually think that book is is more soundbiteable than the pornography of meat, partially because of just the structure. The way the pornography of meat is broken out into many many short chapters, each one is on a, a very fascinating and important idea. But that book is just is really sprawling in its in its coverage. As a way to begin, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your background, training, and the focus of your work.
1: I grew up in a small village in upstate New York. My childhood was filled with books and horses, cats, dogs, very lively family, a mother who was an advocate, a father who was a lawyer. I was outside a lot. I, I have a sense that who I am ha, has been equally influenced by the childhood non-human friends I had as well as the human. I went to the University of Rochester. I was there during the Vietnam War, so I helped organize marches and protests and sit-ins against the Vietnam War. As an undergraduate, I worked to bring feminist studies courses to the college and uh, graduated in 72. I majored in English and history, and I studied with the poet Anthony Hecht. From there, I received a Rockefeller Fellowship to go to Yale Divinity School, where I really floundered. I thought I was going to be able to address questions about spirituality and identity and and where was I going and what does it mean to live a spiritual life. And Yale did try very hard to accommodate my questing, uh, but I did flounder. At the end of that first year, I came home. I've written about it a lot, but a pony was killed, died a... Uh, as some teenagers were out doing hunting, uh, shooting practice in a woods behind our house. And that night, already trained on feminist consciousness, I discovered what a vegetarian consciousness is when I asked myself, why am I eating a hamburger when I would, would not eat my pony? For a year, I studied at in Boston, theologically, and at Harvard Divinity School took a sort of feminist meta-history course. And that's where I introduced my ideas about the connection between feminism and vegetarianism. So that was in 1974. In 76, a publisher offered to publish my ideas as a book, but I withdrew it. I I felt it wasn't really, you know, as it were, cooked. I, I had analogies, but I did not have an analysis. I had comparisons, but I did not have a theory. I returned to upstate New York, where I engaged in community organizing in the county, rural county where I'd grown up. I started a hotline for battered women with my partner in 1978, and then with the NAACP challenged the housing policies of an upstate city, where we won and achieved housing policy changes. I started a soup kitchen, challenged a radio station for its racism during the Reagan years and prevailed. And during this time, while trying to still write the book, I was pursuing the question, what is the connection beyond analogies? What What am I trying to say? I was also reading civil rights history, history of enslavement. Why were so many people still racist in the 1980s? I, I just think that the Carol of the 1980s would not believe what what's happened in the past four years. Right. Then I moved to Texas with my partner who was going to work with the homeless in Dallas. And my other career began of educating about domestic and sexual violence in the Christian church. I created a course on the subject for Perkins School of Theology at SMU, wrote a book on woman battering for ministers, worked with a faith trust institute to develop training manuals for clergy on domestic violence. With my partner raised two incredible sons, they were bused to an African American community for elementary school. We taught them about progressive principles. When Operation Rescue, an anti-abortion group in the 1990s picketed our house, I remember my son, my older son was four of in fourth or fifth grade. And we sat down with them and explained why they were here and that they were against abortion. And I remember my fifth grader looking at me and saying, let me go out and talk to them. Let me tell them that rabbits abort. And I remember thinking, rabbits abort, Uh, you know, and then I had to file it away because we were having to deal with Operation Rescue outside our door. And during that time, I completed the sexual politics of meat and began editing anthologies on feminism and animals.
0: So you've lived quite quite an extraordinary life. It, it sounds like the stuff maybe of a of a future Netflix movie or something like that. <laughs> um, but really, it, it's you've done. A, it sounds like you've done a, a lot of great work and a, a very diverse, rich life. Not not just you know hidden away in in academia you've you've been living the life as as well as contributing to academia before we begin on your books let's begin as you do with the numbers so the original 1990 edition of your book the sexual politics of meat began with the dedication quote in memory of the 6 billion animals killed each year the 2000 edition the 10th year anniversary reprint change that dedication to in memory of the 9.5 billion animals killed each year. And then the 2015, which is the 25th anniversary edition, begins, quote, in memory of the 56 billion animals killed each year. So we go from six to 9.5 to 56 billion in 25 years. So these numbers are not only apocalyptic, but they're Increasing exponentially and very, very fast.
1: Well, uh, thank you for uh, charting the numbers, but I should say that the first, the six billion animals, that's land animals in the United States. The 10th year anniversary is still the land animals in the United States. The uh, That was the increase. But... The 2015, I realized, why am I just focusing on the United States? I'm not just writing to the United States readers. So I worked with people to try to figure out how many animals, both land and sea, are killed each year. And that's where the 56 billion comes from. So it's a more accurate number globally. It is catastrophic. When you think about it, in in Burger, I I reproduce a a map that just shows how much land is being used by animals who were growing, as it were.
0: Animal agriculture, yeah.
1: And it's a third of the land mass of this world is dedicated to uh, the growing of animals. Now, I've looked at statistics from 2017. A lot of these numbers... The statistics I'm seeing for 2017 is 62 billion chickens, 1.47 billion pigs, 650 million turkeys, 545 million sheep, 444 million goats, and 300 million cattle. And there's an interesting philosophical question about can people conceive of large numbers? Right, right. And does the large number of any tragedy keep us from identifying? Are we more likely to identify with a wh- one whale caught under right. a ice than w- this huge number of animals? So I just also want to be careful not to lose that each of those was a separate, living, thriving individual who was a subject of their own life and ha- perceived the world in their own way, had sensitivities and a consciousness, even if it were different than ours.
0: Absolutely. It's a point worth making. And I I do, of course, understand that it it is often the case that I I believe charities that send out two appeals, one of them focuses on a single individual, one of them focuses on a large group of individuals and the appeal to the single that focused on the single individual brings in more money than the one focused on tens of thousands of individuals. But nevertheless, I mean, these numbers are extraordinary. And I believe, and I'm not certain about this, but I believe if you factor in fish and the collateral damage of fishing, meaning you're capturing far more fish than you end up using, the numbers go into the trillions. So so really, yes, focus on the individuals, but it, part of that story has to be just attempting to grapple with the scale of of what is happening. So onto your book, the central thesis of your book is that the oppression of animals and the oppression of women are linked together. And of course, this is captured in your titles, the sexual politics of meat and the pornography of meat. So can you talk to us briefly about, about that, about how these two different oppressions are related to each other?
1: Well, I, I feel like there are several things. It's, it's almost like a kaleidoscope. When you're looking through a kaleidoscope and things shift a little and you see something differently, there are several different overlapping and interconnecting ways that they relate. The first is the symbolic role of meat, dairy, and eggs in a patriarchal culture. We can look back at the 19th century up to the 21st century and see how white manhood was being constructed through meat eating. Even at the end of the 19th century, there was this belief that Western cultures like uh, Great Britain conquered and was successful uh, as a colonial venture because they ate beef and the countries they conquered ate rice. So there was both a reconstruction or a, a mytholo- mythologizing of their meat eating, plus a feminizing and demasculinizing of the colonial places that they were crowing about that they had had defeated. In the first chapter of the sexual politics I meet of meat, I say also that every time it's claimed that we need animal protein, that is a racist presumption as well that there's a racial politics of meat. And I try to make sure to raise issues around that. But the majority of the world never survived uh, on animal protein. It was always surviving on a varieties of ways of having protein from uh, plants. And it's only the past two centuries, really, where this wholehearted commitment to animal protein as the best protein evolved. And it's truly linked to white manhood. Then there's the feminist principles of care and the ends not justifying the means and a challenge of the kind of hidden violence of killing and capturing and oppressing animals versus patriarchal principles that have celebrated violence and death. And I I identify uh, a process of objectification, fragmentation, and consumption, which is a process of making someone into something. And I show how that is used both in misogynistic treatment of women and human supremacist treatment of animals i also look at the muting or ridiculing of caring for animals uh which is becomes associated with women or sissies it's a normalizing and naturalizing of gender binary uh as we would say now it wasn't quite the term in 1990 but it's the same thing that there's a gender binary that uplifts male qualities and and uh abjects women's qualities or qualities associated with women. And one of that is care and sympathy. Also that masculinity continually being under threat has to continually sort of repossess itself through the symbolic act of meat eating. And there's something I love in the first chapter that the meat on the plate is the symbolic representation of patriarchy. And even 30 years later, I see that as true
0: right, so the so the listener has some sense now of how wh- why it's been so difficult to grapple with this book, because that was the first chapter. the whole book is is full of analysis like that. It absolutely is the to this day, I still see news articles mocking mocking vegetarianism and mocking veganism. I can't remember if it's in your book or in another book that I read recently, but I think it was something like seventy percent of all discussion in the media of vegetarianism and veganism is critical?
1: Yeah, it doesn't, it, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's a way for writers to sort of perform masculinity without even having to be honest about it. it it's a way to, to align oneself with the dominant culture, to continue to protect your own stash, as it were. Because if you're ridiculing veganism, you don't have to be held accountable for not being a vegan.
0: Right in a few questions, I'm going to ask you about academia and let's table it for now, but let's include feminist theorists in that discussion. And, and the question of how come, I mean, the point you made is seems to be really obvious. And yet, as you discuss in your book, and as I myself have noticed, these, these ideas aren't spreading like wildfire through academia and through, you know, critical, the, through the critical discourse, and that's something I'd like to ask you about, but let's let's keep moving. The concept of the absent referent is crucial to your analysis. It is, in one sense at least, really the, the crucial concept in the global exploitation of animals. So can you explain to us what is meant by the absent referent and what role it plays in the exploitation of non-human animals and also of women?
1: Yes, I'm happy to. Uh, I I love the gift of the theory of the absent referent, and just want to give just a little background to it. Uh, Back in the '80s, uh, when I was trying to figure out what 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 is the theory of the book, if analogies are retrograde and, and regressive, you know, oh, women and animals are treated like this, I. I I want something more substantive, something that really explains why this continues. And at the same time, I was trying to figure out how to explain that Frankenstein's monster was a vegetarian. So I was reading every book that came out about Frankenstein. And one book that I was reading introduced to me, it's called Bearing the Word by Margaret Homans. And it introduced to me the idea of the absent referent, which I took to, uh, and understood as, say, uh, William Wordsworth out walking in the fields, and he sees all the daffodils uh, blowing in the wind. He doesn't write the poem when he's in front of the daffodils. He only does it when he's back at his house, and he remembers or recollects the sensation of the experience. So the absent referent of the daffodils enable the poem, but they have to be absent from it For it to exist. At least, you know, that's my take on it. And I remember reading that. And we were traveling, we were moving from upstate New York to Dallas. And I thought, well, that's what animals are. Animals are absent reference. They're both present and absent in meat eating, they're present in the form of their dead bodies, but they're absent conceptually. We've taken a living being and we've denied them. Their own unique personhood or beinghood, and decided that they are there available for our enjoyment and consumption. So they disappear as bodies, and then they disappear conceptually. And then the third way they disappear is we take their suffering and exploitation and use it as a metaphor for forms of human oppression. So when women say I was treated like a piece of meat, and in fact, I, you know, even just recently during the Kavanaugh hearings, there was a reference to women at Yale being looked at as like pieces of meat or treated as pieces of meat. But the whole fact of meat is that it doesn't have a feeling, <laughs> you know, to feel like a piece of meat is an, an anomaly because meat doesn't have feeling. It's deprived of feeling.
0: In that case when it's being used as an analogy the absence is the fact that an analogy is made we're treated like a piece of meat but then the animalness the individualness of the meat being referred to has been neglected so don't treat me like a piece of meat but simultaneously I am not going to challenge the fact that we're treating animals as pieces of meat is that correct
1: Right. So there's it, it's all happening in this closed human exceptionalist conversation, while also recognizing that no one actually wants to be a piece of meat. If you have a choice, you do not choose to be a piece of meat. The fact is we've structured our world so that animals don't have a choice, though there are books and, and lots of reports of animals in the resistance, as it were, cows running away, cows hiding their calves so that they can't be taken by the farmers, cows escaping from slaughterhouses, a, a goat who escaped from an auction house and came back and unlocked the gate. So that's those are kind of animals resisting being the absent reference. The day that I realized that animals were absent reference, I remember putting the book down, falling asleep, and when I woke up the next day, I thought, And women are absent reference, too. So I must have processed this in my dream. And what I understood about that is that women, we are so often in a misogynistic world that is going to uh, find ways to structure in the denial of equality and the denial of uh, women's rights. Women are supposed to disappear from ourselves. And so back to that objectification, fragmentation and consumption uh, triad, that women are objectified. Often we lose our individual names and we're, we're called a variety of negative names through an objectification. Then we're fragmented, the discussion of women's bodies, are you a breast man? Are you a thigh man? And then we're consumed. We're not consumed literally like animals, but we're consumed visually. And in our culture, the visual consumption uses as a referent point meat eating. So it's at that point where the absent reference of women and animals become united and the status, the low status of animals and our ability to kill them and do whatever we want to them is then leveraged to intensify the oppression of women and women's status as consumable objects for visual consumption become leveraged upon animals who are then presented as sexy beings wanting to be consumed. So it's no longer or ever was analogical. It's it's becomes interconnected, overlapping. It's the point in which both oppressions are intensified through this association that's enabled by the absent referent.
0: Right. So I think some of, the, some of what you were touching on at the very end is pointing us in the direction of the pornography of meat, and we, we will get to that shortly. Could you just very quickly... I I think this, to me, I've never heard this before. I think this is one of the most astonishing things in your book. Can you talk us through the concept of a mass term and how meat becomes or functions as a mass term? I think that's very much related to the absent and referent.
1: Yes. The mass term concept, what we've done is that meat is a false mass term. In our culture, it's functioning as a mass term, like hamburger. Uh, it's as though all hamburger is interchangeable. Uh, well, in fact, you know, a hamburger now could have dead pieces of cows from, say, 30 to 40 cows.
0: But I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm not sure if the if the listener is familiar with that. So color is a mass. So what are, what are things that are mass?
1: So mass, sorry, Mark. <laughs> mass terms refer to things like water or colors. So that no matter how much water you add to water, it it doesn't change. It's going to stay water. You could add red to red, it stays red. Uh, But when you use animals as mass terms, we are taking someone who's unique and reducing them, uh, mixing them up and treating them as interchangeable.
0: And so meat as a mass term would be, obviously it would be, ground beef. Or it right. would be you have like a, I don't even know what they call it, like a loaf of ham or whatever. And that is just meat. But the point right, but the point that you're making is that's not that is not just meat. That is the corpse of multiple animals that has been blended together and whatever else they do to it to to attempt to make it into something that is perceived as a mass term.
1: Correct. And that's coddles the consumer it protects the consumer's own consciousness from having to engage with the fact that what's in front of them is not uh devoid of specificity as it were is not is not the unique being it really was she really was he really was they really were so we're we're falsely applying this totalizing concept to animals to enable us to eat them. So first comes the absent referent to deny the the individuality, and then comes the mass term to sort of mix it all up. So when people say to me, oh, but I love my hamburger, oh, you know, bacon, 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 they're, they're operating at a plane that is so disconnected and disassociated with what those words require in terms of uh, the treatment of the animal, the killing of the animal, the use of slaughterhouse workers who are often non undocumented immigrants, the destruction to the ecosystem, all of that disappears because the mass term is protecting uh, consciousness, which I believe people have the ability to engage with this information and actually change.
0: So uh, without question, absent referent and mass terms are immensely, immensely important concepts in this analysis. I think they are so clarifying. They are so important. Can you next, can you talk to us about feminized protein? I think this is another, another absent referent where I think that when people think about the, the meat industry, they generally think of animals as being the victims. But in fact, of course, animals, male and female animals, are the victims. But as you and others point out, females are disproportionately victimized over males. So why is it, assume the, the listener hasn't thought this through, why is it, how is it that female non-human animals are especially exploited, in the agricultural process,
1: so female non-human animals have the ability to to bring more product, as it were, from the animal agriculturalist point of view into the world. It, it's sort of like the fulfillment of capitalism that you've got to continue to have more raw material, and the female non-human animals are the ones providing the raw material for the entire industrial. Agriculture complex. And uh, they, so uh, pigs who are kept to gestate and then are behind bars for nursing because supposedly that. That roll over and kill their babies, but somehow they did not do that for right. ten thousand years. But now they would do that. Well, it's
0: really probably for efficiency, right? That's right. Oh, yeah. that's
1: right. I mean, I'm I'm, just, I'm sorry. I right. should have put air quotes about that. Understood. Uh, Understood. Uh, cows. So uh, here, especially in academia, I hear the same questions from academics that I hear from people on talk radio. So like. Well, what's wrong with drinking cow's milk? They, right. they, they'd, they'd be giving, you know, cows, need, we're helping them. And, and I, I, I've sort of taken it back. You lactate because you've given birth. When the lactation stops, you have to be made pregnant again, and then you lactate again. So cows live a, a, a lives of misery where they're constantly pregnant and lactating nine months of the year, which someone is compared to as jogging for seven hours a day. That's the stress on the body. So the reason I coined feminized protein was I wanted to capture the fact that these foods from living animals also cause harm and they're also Something that are result of the exploitation of femaleness or how we've applied gender to animals and then exploit animals based on what's been gendered. Eggs and milk are feminized protein. Uh, chickens, for instance, they're, uh, they're required. So they might have in a lifetime given or a year perhaps late, 12 to 20 eggs I, I I can't remember the specifics now they're supposed to lay 270 eggs a year or, or more and you know they're starved for this so it's commodifying femaleness to produce the products that people continue to show they want by buying them and so that's feminized protein the The protein that we think we need from animals, living animals, and I took that term from the 19th century uh, use of the word animalized protein. Both of those concepts are saying, hey, the protein preexisted the animal. The protein was in the plants. We've just pushed it through the animal one way or the other and, and then create a sort of valuation around that. I mean, what we're really doing is valuing exploitation. Not
0: protein. And then of course, a point you didn't even mention, and I understand why, but it, it's it's definitely part of the equation, is we we force these females to give birth over and over and over again. And then when they do, we simply take their young from them. Well, none I... of these none of these factories are letting the families grow up together. We we remove the young from them. In the case of chickens, if the young are males, there's a very good possibility they put they're put through a shredder. And then if the if the young are females, they might end up either being dinner or they might have might might end up being the next generation of breeders.
1: Right. And for cows, cows can mourn for two weeks after having their their young taken from them. Uh, in a town in Massachusetts, a whole bunch of people called the the local police to say there's this terrible sound, what's going on. And the police said, it's cows mourning their young. And then when they got quoted as mourning, they had to sort of rescind that and say, this is very natural. This is you know going to stop. They had to then parrot the, not parrot, uh, they had to repeat the, the dominant interpretation of that which is not right. Right. I mean, it's one of the few industries where we're letting the farmers right. and the animal industrialists tell us that they know what's best for their animals.
0: <laughs> right. So if you if you listen to the farmers it's just that female cows just completely accidentally happen to make a sound that sounds very sad and mournful in the in the 2 weeks after their young are taken from them. But it certainly has nothing whatsoever to do with any of that and it's it's just the sound that they make they're singing right. Yeah.
1: Well, and also that uh, they, they they will get over it. It's you know it's it's sort of perpetuating I mean this is the absent reference thing. The idea that someone who's just given birth is a little kind of like slippery or it you know can be confused. The the woman who's just given birth and puts her soy milk in the cupboard instead of the refrigerator or whatever. There's all these stories. And I I wonder if they're almost using that. And one thing I've noticed in the 30 years that uh, people have sent me images is how often the images were presented continue to imply that there's sort of a nuclear family existing for animals on the farm when that is a complete lie. So that on the one hand we have these really horrendous practices towards the animals. And on the other hand, the way it's massaged for the consumer is that they're all happy down on the farm, the the chicken family, the the cow. There's when what the farm as we know it now does is to deny relationships that could exist among animals.
0: Right. And the general conception of the farm is still Charlotte's web. (laughs) Meanwhile, it's, it's, it's like a Henry Ford factory assembly line type thing.
1: Right. And it's, and that's where Henry Ford got his idea for the assembly line with the slaughterhouses of, of uh, Chicago at the end of the 19th century.
0: So, a point, very much what the pornography of meat is about. And I under, I understand the point that you're making, but to be honest, I, I still struggle. I still struggle to understand why this, this is done or how it functions. But the point that you make in the pornography of meat is that most anthropomorphized animals in meat advertisements are depicted as female. And this is noteworthy because across standard depictions of non-human animals in popular culture, for example, Daffy Duck or Mickey Mouse or you name it, they're overwhelmingly male. But in meat advertisements, the animals are overwhelmingly depicted of female. And so the question is, why, why is this done? And as your book, The Pornography of Meat, details and gives examples, they are often portrayed in, in a sexualized fashion. And I, I think, you know, I've read the words and I, I kind of get it, but it still is perplexing to me. Can you, can you attempt to walk us through why in meat advertisements, more often than not, the image of the animal is a female and very, very often it's a sexualized female?
1: Well, it's, I mean, at the basic level, it's showing us the absent reference at work because it's like a twofer. Not only does a misogynist world get to uh, perpetuate its its confidence in consuming animals, but it gets to do it while laughing at women without having to be honest about it. I, I think about this menu item, double D cup breast of turkey sandwich. This sandwich is so big, which was with a restaurant in Chicago. So think about it. You come into the restaurant, say for a work lunch, you're the only woman at the table, and you look down and, and there's this menu offering. Suddenly you are you are not an equal anymore. You are someone who can be without ever that being honest that they're talking about her, everybody else can snicker at that sandwich. And talk about double D cup. It it enables a level of sexual harassment or sexual innuendo that is continually messaging women while massaging the violence of meat into something that's just fun. I think that's something we have to remember here. That the production of animal protein is a violent, violent commodification of bodies. And who wants to be a part of that? But hey, look at that sexy chicken. Isn't that funny? With her pose. Or look at that pig saying, you know, come and get me. I, I want you. Isn't that funny? So it makes something very serious into something light. And then... The kicker is what's light for uh, misogynist culture is painful reminder of our own object status for those who are non dominant. So, you know, this when you've got a giant gender binary and also this consumer uh, or consumption commitment in, in sort of uh, representations so that representations are constantly representing their own need to exist the yep. representation of the animal becomes as much a part of our cultural need as the consumption of the animal because at both levels and many other they are instantiating oppression oppression in the moment as women's objectification is being laughed about and enjoyed and oppression continually as it maintains a commitment to the animal industrial complex
0: right I, yeah i think i was maybe thinking too literally about it it's it's not it's not about conveying to the consumer that the that the food they're about to eat is necessarily female or sexualized it's more about conveying to them that the purveyor of the product is in on the dominance of males and so it's more about the inside joke and the 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 feelings of power that maybe are satisfying at the expense of women and animals um, than a more literal reading where they're we're actually trying to map sexualized females onto the food it's more about the the power dynamics i think that makes a lot of sense
1: but I think they are at times sexual, you know, mapping sexualized females onto the food.
0: Right. Because s- why else would we
1: have uh, are you a leg man or are you a breast man? A breast man around consuming dead chickens. It, it's all of that is also a distancing device. It's kind of like are you going to eat a leg of lamb? The lamb can't even possess their own legs. People don't eat lamb's legs or even look at chicken wings they are a chickens wings animals cannot be possessors of their own bodies and and so in a misogynist world where a variety of non dominant people including women uh, cis women and trans women altogether are not allowed to completely be possessors of our own bodies it's sort of mobilizing Interconnected oppressions to maintain interconnected oppressions
0: yeah it that this is what I was saying in the beginning. The pornography of meat gets gets very gets very nuanced and very complex in a wonderful way. it is a rich it is a rich, rich text, but what we're looking at is so surreal and bizarre that it just everything becomes very complicated, so you write quote Oppression leverages animality against disenfranchised humans and uses that association to justify this, their disenfranchisement, end quote. And according to this reading, the the denigration of animals is central to the broader discussions of sexual and racial justice. So could you talk to us briefly about this? What role does the denigration of animals have or play in the denigration of other humans.
1: Yes, thank you for this, especially during this time when we see this resurgence of white male grievance uh, uh, at a variety of levels. It's very important for us to understand, and this is drawing on feminist understandings of Western philosophy and feminist histories to lay this out, but that and also african american vegan writers and others who who've excavated the whole history of racism and uh, the valuation of whiteness uh, over the past 500 years uh, so basically that our concept of the animal is always existing in relationship to our concept of human so that human evolved to be defined as not animal, but also as a specific kind of human. So, you know, from, from uh, the Constitution, that human was a white male property-owning person. And so every one of us who did not fit that were constantly fighting to have the definition of human opened up. And there's a reaction against it. But in doing that, we often say, hey, you're saying we're like animals. So you could look at all the history, the, the, the white supremacist history that talks about African-Americans as being animal-like or the misogynist history that looks at uh, women as animal-like, that we menstruated, we, we gave birth. These were seen as animal-like functions. Uh, so they're leveraging the negative status of animals. And we know that animals have a negative status because we can do anything to them practically and nobody's going to stop us. The the few cases of uh, animal cruelty being really negligible. So it's lever- leveraging this negative association of animality with humans who are Not just disenfranchised, but they are so unlike this sort of regressive notion of who the human is, or the retrograde notion of human, that we're constantly trying to legitimate ourselves in an exercise that's legitimating the notion of human. And we're, it's very hard to to win that. You know, like the feminist button that says feminism is the radical notion that women are human. Well, what's our definition of human? If human is the person who's superior over animals, however they're defined, we are, we are sentencing ourselves to constantly having to prove we're not animal and that we are that kind of human. So the animals become... This anchor for oppression. It's very clear that white enslavers knew African American women held as enslaved people were not animals because they were raping them right. and they did not see themselves as committing bestiality. But on the other hand, in the 17th century, when they rewrote inheritance law in Virginia and said, that the identity of the child followed the mother instead of the father, which was a huge change, a patriarchal to a matriarchal. They did that based on laws about animals. So they used animal status to help them create the, the enslaved world we 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 are still recovering from and, and haven't dealt honestly with. But they knew the women weren't animals. Still, they could use animals. It's that constant, um, It's it's like a DNA in oppressive figuration so that we see it, it's just appalling throwing bananas at serena williams if she's out on the tennis field uh court because there's an association of african americans with monkeys the the constant attempt to animalize non-dominant people to animalize uh, women uh people of color people of a variety of sexualities it's it's attempting to shore up a corrupt notion of the human. In,
0: and in the process, defining the animal as contemptible. Correct. Let's talk very quickly, as I as I said I would ask you, about what I describe as the, to me, sort of almost the glacial pace through which ideas, animal rights ideas are are making their way through academia and critical discourse. And I know, I know that you sympathize with this because you state on multiple occasions in your books how disappointed you are that many feminist theorists who use the imagery of animal slaughter to discuss human forms of violence uh, do so without acknowledging the legitimacy of violence or the, the reality of the violence against the animals. And I also, I have many connections in academia, and I honestly think, I I could be wrong, it's a very small sample size, but I feel that my non-academic friends are more likely to be sympathetic to animal rights ideas than my academic friends. So, what what are your thoughts on this, and is there anything that, that can be done about it to attempt to convey to our academic friends or family or peers that these ideas are are part of the 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 language of justice that everyone feels so passionately about that that animals really should be included in that discourse
1: so there's two parts to that question and i'll try to quickly deal with both why don't feminists or uh, other progressive uh, academics get it i've I've worked for 30 years, recently did this book, Protest Kitchen, that really was trying to show progressives this is, you know, this is what food justice is, this is climate change, this is concern about democracy and misogyny. Veganism is has a part in that. And I'm I'm constantly trying to figure out how to have this conversation. But we the reason we have to have it is because the absent referent. Has its hold here in academia. To begin with, I was told when Sexual Politics of Meat came out that one feminist, a leading feminist at the MLA, was told by other feminists they did not want to read it because they were worried they would have to stop eating meat. And it made me laugh. I mean, isn't theory supposed to change right. your mind on something? Absolutely. So there's self interest and there's human centeredness. There's also a fear that it's going to erode the advances for feminism or any progressive cause that we see are so fragile yes. at this time. So how can we bring in animals? Well, we, we bring in animals because they're already there. They're already complexly uh, in this DNA of oppression, already operating in facilitating our oppression. We've just got to make it more consciously engaged with. But instead of engaging with it, they they have self-interest and human-centeredness. So self-interest, you like your hamburger, your cheese pizza. You tell me that, so I know that. There's also tofu-phobia, which is really a huge success for Western colonialism. Tofu seitan, tempeh, all from uh, countries that were colonized and, and used people who learn for a living but don't want to learn how to cook vegan i mean really marinara sauce oatmeal a beautiful salad they're already on their way so human centeredness you know that we have to deal with human problems first but of course our treatment of animals is a human-made problem (laughs) it is part of the human problems So the other thing is they have to examine their own prejudices, stereotypes, and assumptions to move forward. For instance, pigs are as smart as dogs. Why not register that? Doesn't that change bacon? And then, as I said, people are protective. Are you comparing women of all races or or African-Americans of all gender to animals? And we're seen as a, a threat to the project of human rights. But we aren't the ones doing the comparing. The comparing was already there. We are illuminating why the comparing worked. Finally, there's this human assumption about animals that they matter so little ethically in this framework. How can they matter in terms of scholarship? In other words, because we hold them so low that we could eat them, how can I possibly see them as mattering to me in terms of the scholarship I'm doing? Well, you know, we could start with the use of the animal like the cow and accomplishing settler colonialism in the United States. I, I think a book like mine and others prompt an anxiety. And though even though I don't say should anywhere in, S, in the sexual politics of meat, it's as though I'm doing so. So I just want to say to academics who haven't felt receptive yet. It's as simple as eating a Beyond Burger instead of a hamburger. Or making a bean burger or throwing tofu into the oven. Just do a little digging to confront your own irrational beliefs. What have your, if you have children in your lives, what have they ever said about animals? Aren't animals something that children see as individuals? Is your laziness in engaging with these ideas a defense that hides the truth from yourself? about your participation in a dominant culture that's destroying so much that we cherish. So, you know, one of the things I decided about 20 years ago was to look at anyone who's not a vegan as a blocked vegan and to look at their responses as revealing what blocked them. So when I talk to people, that's what I listen to. I also... In academia, it's often that I'm greeted by saying, yes, but what about battered women? Yes, what about the homeless? And it's like, hey, you want my CV? But I don't do that because that would legitimate that my working for the homeless or my working to stop domestic violence, my working against racism is the thing that makes me morally acceptable to them. When I want them to see that to exclude How we look at animals is also to exclude justice-seeking activities like protecting slaughterhouse workers, protecting people living in the global South who are going to be the first affected by climate change. And even though caring about animals could be seen as a positive attribute, they don't think that they can care about animals in a way that will be experienced as positive in their life. So it's knowledge that scares them and a fear of grief and a regret at what they might've participated in. So they're sort of like jumbled, all of this is jumbled together. And, you know, just to finish, there has been a growth in animal studies and critical animal studies since my book came out. And I'm grateful for that, but we have to address the misogyny that ignores the contributions of women. And I just, want to encourage anyone who wants to think about these that academics who spend an inordinate time telling me animals don't matter always make me curious if they don't matter and are so irrelevant why does it take them so long to dismiss them in a conversation with me if they really did not matter that's all you'd have to say But instead, we get all these convoluted defenses. So often I think it's a reflection of time. It's a reflection of anxiety. And in this sort of hyper-pressured time where you're supposed to get so much done, to think that you have to take on something else might just be overwhelming as well.
0: Right. That was a very, very thorough answer. It's obvious that you've thought this through a lot, as have I. Um, it just, it just isn't a zero sum matter. I, I feel like academics don't have any trouble conceiving that they would be able to care about multiple human social justice issues, and so I, I struggle with understanding how adding, adding care for the animals subtracts. From the others, but anyway.
1: Wait, I just can I just throw one other thing in. Sorry, Mark. (laughs) It's I, you know, when when you talk to some people, they say, "Don't tell me," you know, "Don't tell me." (laughs) They they begin by saying, "Why are you a vegan?" And then you start to say, "Well, animals," and then they'll interrupt (laughs) you and say, "Don't tell me." (laughs) They already know, right? The question is, how do you access? your feelings about the suffering of animals without fearing that you're going to be destroyed by the grief of knowing what's going on because it is truly heartbreaking. And I think one thing feminist vegans and progressive vegans can do is demonstrate, yes, we live with this grief, but it doesn't destroy us. Grief is part of living right now, the grieving the victims of the coronavirus, grieving the victims uh, that we we try to remember in Black Lives Matter and, and say her name. Grief is part of being an aware citizen in the world right now. And that grief can be mobilized to be good. And grief doesn't have to be destructive. Grief is a gift that we are given. And we learn, oh, you know, like for me, it's like, oh yeah, there you are, grief. There's the reminder of why I care. There's, but it it doesn't kill me. It right. It it enlightens me. It it enriches my life. It it's connected me. My grief is a point of connection. It destroys that structure of the absent referent. And it it's fighting always against this patriarchal human centered culture that says it gets to decide who matters and who doesn't
0: i think you do you bring up one very good point and it's that from a certain perspective when i look around i i worry that not all that much has changed in 50 years but The point you just made, I think, is important, is I I do think that today people understand what's happening, even if they're not ready to grapple with it, even if they're not ready to make any changes. I think that it's become very, very difficult to have avoided the broader discourse that there are ethical issues at play here that they probably should be grappling with even if until now they have decided not to. I think maybe 50 years ago, a lot of people weren't even really conscious of that. And I think now many, many, many more people are conscious of that. And that is an important stage in the process. So a related point that you make in your book, uh, related to something you touched on maybe a, three or four minutes ago, is that the whole this whole process uh, in terms of the... Academic engagement or lack of academic engagement results in an active silencing of important historical figures. And this is really fascinating. And I think this is something that academics should be able to understand immediately. So essentially, what is happening is that important historical feminists have self identified as vegetarians and spoken out vocally in defense of animals, in defense of their vegetarianism. And yet, scholars and even contemporary scholars who do not deem that aspect of their lives to be important simply ignore it and do not include it in their scholarship so this to me seems like something if you brought it to the attention of scholars do you think that we should be actively excluding from the discussion things that these figures have deemed important i think they would say of course not so could you talk to us quickly about about that that the the Silencing of aspects of these figures' lives. Uh,
1: it's it's an interesting problem because they become absent reference in history and theory themselves. Then, you know, who's telling the story of resistance? And so, in the sexual politics of meat, I I knew that some women were vegetarians or followed the Graham diet in the nineteenth century, and then I just started following it and found you know, a feminist vegetarian peace newsletter, uh, of the end, at the end of the 19th century. And I realized that I was dependent on all the biographers to identify when, uh, activists were writing about their work to identify as well, what they were eating. But if, and, and what I suggest is if you're not taking seriously what you're eating, perhaps you're not paying attention to what other people are eating, or you're reducing it down to being a fad, or you're labeling it in some way. So dietary choices become personalized rather than seen as this uh, part of a movement. And I think we're trying so hard to work to uncover the archives that can help us know the history better. Because 30 years ago, I said, I, I can't do a history yet of veganism and feminism or vegetarianism and feminism because we don't even know all the archives we should be looking at. Uh, but even recently, you've got farm worker organizer Cesar Chavez, black activist Dick Gregory, feminist writer and novelist Bridget Brophy. They all made connections about animals and vegetarianism and, and veganism for a couple of them. Why? What are they telling us, these activists and these visionaries? I also found that, I mean, I think one reason sexual politics to me resonated so much is that I looked at vegetarianism within novels, you know, like Frankenstein's monster and said, why has a novelist placed vegetarianism and now veganism there? What's going on? And I decided something is going on and then made that point. And one of the things we're missing, and I think historians are now trying to do, is look at the way eating meat bolstered white masculinity in historical context. That as we do that, we have to look at the figures who were lost, who was challenging that association at the time.
0: Right. The Your Frankenstein chapter is, is really very good. It's really a, a, a terrific, just... Literary crit- essay and literary criticism. I, I definitely refer our readers to it. It's it's very good, and it. I'm familiar with the text. I studied English literature in college, and it was a definitely a new a new reading of that text that I think is it. it it's really the evidence you accrue backs it up. You know, it's it's a very legit legitimate, very compelling reading. Thank you, Mark. Beginning to wrap up our discussion. You write that, quote, just as the feminist theory needs to be informed by vegetarian insights, animal rights theory requires an incorporation of feminist principles, end quote. So could you talk to us briefly about a few ways in which feminist theory could be brought to bear on animal rights discussions? You've touched on this a little bit, but maybe maybe just summarize. What are some of the some of the lessons from, from feminism that animal rights advocates should, should bear close attention to?
1: To begin with, I think animal rights activists have to recognize that the feminist ethics of care motivates a lot of them. And that even if they're using the language as sort of analytic uh, philosophy, rights or liberation, their, their motivations actually were because they cared. And that we have a language for discussing that, which is the feminist ethics of care, and that it is okay to care. You do not have to construct your arguments around traditional manhood, philosophical concepts that say caring is wrong. Animal rights should not focus on single issues and claim that animals need us. Rather, they have to recognize that the treatment of animals is embedded within unjust human relationships how animality helps mark gender and race. There's a fixation generally on white male writers in the animal rights genealogy, on fathers rather than mothers. And there's a whiteness issue. Uh, There's some tendency to lift up sort of a white male savior who's going to help everybody understand. Uh, Animal rights activists and, and theorists should not... Uh, spend all their time, which some of them do, talking to feminists about uh, the treatment of cows. It's funny because I see this by a lot of uh, uh, white men, and it's sort of like they want to skirt the issue of manhood, even as vegans. So they're not taking the issue to all the, the men who need to hear this story. They are focusing on on women. And I I constantly say, you know, there's a book on this. (laughs) There's the sexual politics of meat. Let feminists do this work. Why don't you go deal with manhood? The use of analogies often loses the argument rather than winning it. It's experienced as insensitive. It misses the point of interconnected oppressions. And uh, don't campaign for veganism by assuring men they'll still be masculine. Let's, you know, let's work against the gender binary rather than uphold it.
0: So, you know, we've already taken up a good amount of your time. So thank you so much. To wrap up, could I just ask, is there anything that you're working on now that you'd be willing to share with us?
1: Sure. I'm just completing with Michael Wise, a professor of history at University of North Texas, an anthology on vegan cycling, Peddling the Resistance. Hmm. I'm updating the Echo feminist anthology that came out a few years ago, co edited with Lori Gruen. We're adding about 60,000 words and a whole new section that'll be out on January 1st. I'm doing another anthology with Lori and Alice Crary that's going to be dealing with issues of Me Too, colonialism, Black Lives Matter, philanthropy, and animal sanctuaries. And I'm very excited about that. And I'm did a piece for the New York times about reading 40 years of my mother's calendars. It, it received so many responses just from heartbreaking stories to wonderful celebrations. And I'm trying to make that into a book and it's a challenge. It may take me the 14 years it took me to write the sexual politics of Meat, but I have a goal.
0: All of that is wonderful. You were, you are keeping incredibly busy and productive, and I think that's great
1: thank you I, I I just want to say that doing the work that gives joy is one way of of handling grief too so uh anchoring one's life in some joyful uh activities, whatever they are, riding for me is a joyful activity biking and and cooking uh walking the dogs being. I I think people maybe are afraid that to take on serious issues, you're going to be depressed. Well, they're depressing information, but we can wrench joy within living in an oppressive world. And I think that's one of my commitments to myself after 30 years of living with some of the depressing stuff I encounter in working on the sexual politics of meat and, the pornography of meat. So, thank you, Mark, for your careful, thoughtful engagement with those books and 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 your questions.
0: Carol, I I cannot speak more highly about your two books. They are singular. They are compellingly argued, and they're urgently needed even today. Thank you so much for writing both, uh, for your time and insights today, and really for devoting your life to this crucially important work. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you today.
1: Thank you, Mark.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Carol J. Adams about her 1990 book, The Sexual Politics of Meat, and her 2004 book, The Pornography of Meat, both recently republished by Bloomsbury Academic. They are, without a doubt, two of the finest books ever written about the intersection of animal rights and feminism. The theme music for this episode, and for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the New Books and Animal Studies channel on the New Books Network. See you next time.